Conrad DeBice would have been a legend on any frontier, in any situation anywhere that offered power and brigandage. But in the gallery of traditional Afrikaner heroes, DeBice has no place. He's a footnote in all history books, someone who cannot be passed without a pause and some reflection. A minor figure, but one who provides magnificent illustration. Noel Mostert, Frontiers. It used to be that frontier history depicted the frontier as an advancing line of civilization, a knife's edge, a more or less hard barrier between civilization and savagery. You were on one side or the other. In recent decades, scholars and storytellers alike have taken a different and more nuanced approach to looking at frontier zones, what has become known as borderlands history. Pekka Hamalainen, who wrote the fantastic books The Comanche Empire and Lakota America, describes borderland history this way. At some point in the recent past, borderlands history entered the mainstream. All across North America, from the 17th century Great Lakes and 18th century Great Basin, to the 19th century Rio Bravo and the 20th century Columbia River, historians have gravitated to tales of economic exchange, cultural mixing, and political contestation at the edges of empires, nations, and world systems. Anchored in spatial mobility, situational identity, local contingency, and the ambiguities of power, this is the brave new world of Borderlands history. These are not traditional frontier histories where empires and settler colonists prepare the stage for nations, national expansion, and a transcontinental future. The open-ended horizons of Borderlands history cut against that grain. Now, of course, the same principles that Hamelinen identifies there apply in Southern Africa. It's true that Conrad DeBice would have been a legendary frontiersman on any frontier simply by virtue of his giant stature. He was almost seven feet tall. His skill as a hunter and his ornery independent streak. What makes him truly fascinating, though, is the way he moved so fluidly across geographic and cultural frontiers on the Eastern Cape in the late 18th century and early 19th century. He's actually a perfect subject for a scholar of borderlands history. Everything that the man did was anchored in spatial mobility, situational identity, local contingency, and the ambiguities of power. Conrad de Bice was born in 1761. He was a descendant of a 17th century French Huguenot immigrant winemaker named Jean de Bice. By the time the line got down to Conrad, the de Bices had lost their, their bourgeois respectability and moved out into the frontier of the Eastern Cape, and basically they had, had become what we know as Boers. Conrad's youth was not a particularly happy one. When he was around six or seven years old, he found his father sitting on a chair with his legs drawn up stiff as planks, howling in agony. And he writhed in excruciating pain through the night and then died. Conrad walked to his sister, his half-sister Gertrude's house to bring the news, which apparently didn't surprise his sister very much. Gertrude had seen her own father, their mother Christina's first husband, Dirk Minnie, die in the same way. And uh, 
the conclusion is that Christina was a black widow, adept with, uh, with the poison. So, for obvious reasons, Conrad did not go back home and, and elected to live with Gertrude and her husband, David Senecal. And he contracted to work for them raising their cattle to be paid when he reached his, his majority. His brother-in-law stiffed him, and Conrad had to sue his brother-in-law and sister at the Cape in order to get his due. And uh, Noel Mostert uh, argues that this soured him on his family and on Boer society in general. Apart from forays to sell his ivory and cattle, his was to remain in existence almost always on the outermost perimeters. After his childhood experiences, one is inclined to believe that he never really liked or trusted his fellow Boers, or even much respected them. His contempt for their gullibility, credulousness, and panic was often apparent. He knew too well, too, their jealousies, bitter quarrels, and tawdry recrimination. By the 1780s, Conrad was a noted hunter. He must have been remarkable to stand out in that frontier society, which was, was full of skilled hunters. Dubois most likely hunted with a flintlock smoothbore Dutch musket of approximately 75 caliber. Perhaps what was called a babian bout, which means baboon haunch, which is a reference to the shape of the musket's butt. Uh, they resembled um, the old buccaneer muskets of the 17th and 18th century. And a piece like that threw a very, very heavy ball but uh, didn't have much range. Ignition was far from 100% reliable, and you only had one shot, although it's possible that, uh, that he carried multiple weapons on his hunts. Um, as mentioned in our introductory podcast, hunting elephant this way, which was something of a, a Du Bois specialty, with such armament was uh, just required an enormous set of balls. Um, and that Du Bois had. In fact, everything about him was enormous. He was almost seven feet tall and was considered to be remarkably well-proportioned and athletic. A traveler named Henry Lichtenstein described him this way. His uncommon height, for he measured nearly seven feet, the strength yet admirable proportion of his limbs, his excellent carriage, the confident look of his eye, his high forehead, his whole mien, and a certain dignity in his movements made altogether a most pleasing impression. Such one might conceive to have been the heroes of ancient times. He seemed the living figure of a Hercules, the terror of his enemies, the hope and support of his friends. In the 1780s, he established a farm, which you might think of as a cattle ranch, in the region known as the Zerveld, a swath of grasslands about 80 miles long and 50 miles wide on the Eastern Cape. And it was, at that time, the most contested section of that Eastern Cape frontier. These were grazing lands traditionally worked by the Kosa, and they were not inclined to give them up, no matter how many times Boer frontiersmen ran them out. The Eastern Cape frontier was a very complicated place in the late 18th century. The writ of the Dutch East India Company that, that supposedly ran the Cape Colony 
didn't really extend into the frontier lands where large and aggressive clans of Boers reigned like medieval barons. Boers raided Kosa cattle, Kosa raided Boer cattle, and sometimes different groups binded together to raid other combinations of Boers and Kosa. The Kosa themselves were engaged in a, a pretty much continuous game of thrones that pitted various houses and principalities against each other, which encouraged these kinds of alliances of convenience with Boers against their rivals. And this whole very tense situation was exacerbated by pretty severe drought. So in Pekka Hemelainen's formulation, there was a, a whole lot of economic exchange, cultural mixing, and political contestation at the edges of empires, nations, and world systems going on there. If the conditions in the Zurveld remind you of the English-Scottish borders in the 16th, centuries, um, 16th century, with border reavers stealing cattle and women from each other and shifting alliances, well, that's pretty much what the picture was. Du Bois had married a woman of slave and Khoikhoi descent named Maria Vanderhorst, uh, and, and he would have seven children with her. Uh, but she was far from his only woman, not by a long, long measure. Um, in, in conjunction with all of his other larger-than-life qualities, Conrad Du Bois had an enormous uh, libido, which he exercised quite prolifically. When he crossed the Fish River to raid for Hosha cattle, he sometimes came back with concubines. In one case, he abducted the wife of a Kosa chief named Longa, who, he, who protested this uh, kidnapping very vociferously to the Dutch East India Company authorities. Uh, du Bois basically lived like a warlord. He was hunting for ivory and stealing cattle and women for his, his living. He dressed mostly in animal skins and wore a broad-brimmed leather hat. And uh, the moccasin of the South African frontier, the, the Veldskon, which be, would become the inspiration for the classic Clark's desert boot. So he was a, a very picturesque man leading a very picturesque life. His raiding and woman stealing was regarded as approximate cause of the Second Frontier War in 1793. There would be a total of nine recognized Eastern Cape Wars over the course of the century between 1779 and 1879. And the Dutch East India Company, being virtually bankrupt and teetering on the edge of collapse at all times, could not afford to fight wars, especially ones that were caused by their own people. Uh, Magistrate Honoratius Meunier, a man of great principle and courage, with a totally impossible task, tried to both wage a campaign against Kosa raiders and to rein in the Boers. And a cabal of Boer rebels, device prominent among them, just ran him out of the territory. So as far as the D Dutch East India Company was concerned, device was an outlaw. But they really lacked the reach to, to touch him. So while this Game of Thrones was afoot in the Eastern Cape, there was another massive Game of Thrones afoot um, in 
faraway Europe, whose repercussions would would shape the history of, of South Africa. Um, 1793, we're talking about the era of the French Revolution and the uh, the wars that flowed out of that um, upended the whole order of Europe, including in the Netherlands. In 1795, the British seized control of the Cape, though they didn't really want it. They just didn't want it to fall into, into French hands. And uh, they would give it back to the Netherlands briefly before seizing control again in 1806, this time more or less on a permanent basis. But that's getting ahead of the story a little bit. So in 1795, the British are uh, in control in the Cape, and they tried to calm this roiled frontier, but men like Device weren't having it. They weren't going to bend the knee to the Dutch East India Company. They sure as hell weren't going to submit to the British, who they regarded as as foreign invaders. Um, And many of them also were in sympathy with the ideals of the French Revolution as they had been transmitted across the oceans to southern Africa. So Device began to foment rebellion, not just amongst the Boers, but amongst the Xhosa as well. The British put a price on his head, and he absconded to across the, the Fish River, the, that Fish River frontier, into what was then known as, as Kafirland, where he linked up with a young chieftain who had risen to lead a faction of the Xhosa. Uh, Debye's married Ngika's mother, Yese, who was enormously fat, and enormously intelligent and enormously influential, and he became a key counselor of this young Kosa prince. So by the mid-1790s, Debice was living quite contentedly at Ngika's uh, great place in the Tiomi River Valley, just south of the modern-day village of Hogsback, which is a tourist destination for hikers seeking a magical and enchanted landscape that reminds them of J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth. Uh, du Bois and was, he was one of a number of Boer renegades and English deserters who found life there in this uh, beautiful place amongst the Kosa, uh, a very congenial way of life, um, not dissimilar from, from what they were familiar with. Uh, um, the Kosa and the Boers both lived uh, what we would consider pretty rude and primitive existences uh, based around the herding of cattle. So living amongst the Kosa was not a major change in lifestyle for these boers. And uh, that reflects, again, you know, a different uh, outlook on the frontier and the nature of the borderlands than what conventional history has has passed down to us, um, Mostert describes it this way. What operated on the eastern Cape frontier in the middle to the end of the 18th century was the modus vivendi, much more practical, logical, and closer to the instinct of the land than the stereotyped view. The early frontiersmen did not view the black man solely as an enemy or servant. 
Blacks were not regarded implacably as enemies, and it was not the frontier seen as a social system distinct and isolated which produced a new or even intensified an old pattern of racial relationships. Now, we should be careful not to romanticize this as some kind of proto-rainbow nation of multicultural harmony. Uh, the Boer frontiersmen and Conrad Debeis in particular were rough customers, and uh, their relationship with the native peoples wasn't based on any notion of, of multicultural harmony or interracial harmony. They were just practical men, and uh, these were, uh, were people who were part of their landscape and part of their world. They interacted with them as situations dictated, trading, mating, and fighting as the case uh, as the case presented itself, but it is an interesting difference in what our stereotyped view of of racial divisions and a very hardened attitude of the Boers against the blacks in in Southern Africa. That really wasn't at play nearly so much in the 18th century as it would become from the middle of the 19th century on. There were many, many changes afoot in the world that would influence the course of history in, uh, in South Africa. And among those was the rise of a missionary movement that was very heavily focused on Africa and would have a tremendous impact. This was part of a of a broad religious revival, mostly Protestant religious revival that uh, occurred both in Europe and in the new United States during the early part of the 19th century and, and really started in the late part of the 18th century. And in 1799, a group of missionaries led by a Dr. Johannes Vanderkamp came to Nkika's great place and they were there to, to convert the natives to Christianity, bring them the, the good word. And uh, initially, Debeis suspected them of being British spies, but for reasons that remain obscure, um, because they're really reasons of the human heart, uh, Debeis became friends with Vanderkamp, and this very unlikely friendship deepened a great deal during Vanderkamp's stay, and uh, and they became very close. And the missionaries' stature grew with the Kosa because um, rains came after his arrival, and uh, and it seems that Debeis sort of played that up and played up his relationship with Vanderkamp to improve his position. In Geeka's court, um, which was becoming precari precarious, uh, all was not well in the kingdom, this young chieftain uh, developed a, a reputation for greed and cruelty that alienated his people from him and eroded his support. And uh, that's always a dangerous contingency when you're in operating in a near constant state of internecine conflict. 
So DeBuyce judged that both he and his friend Vanderkamp were in danger um, from Nkika, um, and they eventually fled the Great Place and back into the Cape Colony. In one incident, Vanderkamp nearly drowned in a, in a rushing stream, but uh, the giant DeBuyce strode out into the, the stream and plucked his, his friend out, um, out of the water and out of danger and saved his life. The British returned the Cape to the Dutch for a short time in 1803 and then assumed control again in 1806, and this time that was, was for real. And uh, that put a little bit of pressure on Dubice. Um, just He was such a natural rebel that, uh, that getting along under an increasingly present British administration just wasn't in the cards for him. So through the first two decades of the 19th century, Dubice and, and his clan, which included wives, concubines, an enormous amount of offspring and a bunch of associates, trekked gradually north further and further into the wild and away from British authority. And uh, through this period, he continued to hunt and trade with native peoples of whatever region he was trekking in, including uh, the Indibeli of, uh, of Mizilikazi, um, the people that would, uh, would settle north of the Limpopo River in what would become Rhodesia and then Zimbabwe. And uh, Dubois at this time was often in the company um, of, a, of a hunting partner named Joseph Arend, who was an escaped slave. Conrad's end came mysteriously. He was getting old, and uh, his health was beginning to fail. A beloved daughter had died of yellow fever. And uh, in 1820, he undertook to trek into Mozambique, which was a Portuguese colony at the time, and told several of his sons to wait for him at the Limpopo River, which would become the boundary between South Africa and Zimbabwe. And he trekked off into the wild and disappeared and was never found, never heard from again, which is perfect. His clan would settle in the, in the region, in the northern Transvaal, and become known as a distinct people, the, the Bice folk. He'd given that tribe a, a pretty vigorous start. He was said to have, have sired 315 mixed-race children and had 3,000 or more grandchildren. So, Conrad de Bice really is an avatar for Borderlands history a living example of spatial mobility, all of that moving across frontiers in the Eastern Cape and then north into the wild, situational identity. He was a Boer, but he also became a counselor to a native prince. Local contingency, he was working with whatever People suited his interests at the time. Sometimes he was in rebellion with his fellow Boers. Sometimes he was opposed to them. And uh, his loyalties were really to his own interest and the interest of his particular clan. And the ambiguities of power. Debice was operating in an arena where 
the controlling legal authorities of uh, the Dutch East India Company and the British administration had a really difficult time asserting their authority. And so uh, he and other other Boers really became, for a time, a law unto themselves. And then when the, the powers that be began to assert themselves more effectively, they left and fled to areas where they could again establish themselves as a law unto themselves on the frontier. I'm going to let Noel Mostert from his magnificent book Frontiers summarize Conrad Device. No individual saga reads more like a leitmotif of the early Afrikaner trekboer history. The trekking and hunting, marking out the interior for possession, adapting to the native life, mistrustful of his own kind, rebelling against all established authority, fomenting discord of any reckless sort, and energetically creating the while a shadow people who in time would fall into racial rejection and social obscurity. It was an astonishing performance by an exceptional individual. Thank you all for joining me on the trail of this exceptional individual. I'd like to especially thank the the patrons who support Frontier Partisans on our Patreon page, Robert Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, Christopher West, Free Live Free, that's Matthew, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwartfager. And uh, any of you who would like to uh, join them in support of the Frontier Partisans podcast and and website, uh, the Patreon link will be posted with the show notes. I'll also uh, post a link to... uh, Mostert's Frontiers, which is truly a a magnificent book um, and uh, of an enormous scale like uh, like Conrad Du Bois himself. Uh, It's a 1,300-page hardback. You can't read it at night for bedtime reading because if you dropped it on your face, you would put yourself in the hospital. But it's just an absolutely magisterial work on the... uh, Eastern Cape frontier, and as you could tell from the expert excerpts that I read, um, it's uh, quite well written and uh, thoroughly absorbing. So I'll link to that in the in the show notes as well, and uh, we'll continue on further into Africa. And uh, I've got a, a few different uh, podcasts planned. Uh, one I just can't resist recounting the story of Frederick. Courtney Salou, um, who's always been one of my my frontier heroes. So that's uh, going to be the, the show for next time, and we'll see you down the trail.